Revelation uh, 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isaiah 49, 8-13 Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture, but they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Thank you, Grace. Well, we have been taking a quick look through the Bible in the season of Advent and how uh, this message of Advent is told all throughout Scripture. Uh, in this, we're trying to show that to be the people of God means to be a people of waiting, a people waiting for the coming promised Son, as we covered in week one, a people waiting for the promised land, as we covered in our second week of Advent. And now we are talking today about faith in the promised restoration from Isaiah 49, 8 to 13. All of Scripture is highlighting the kingdom of God that is here and the kingdom of God that is coming and pointing us how to be kingdom-minded people in a life that looks nothing like the kingdom of God now. So uh, we get to our Bible survey and we come to the prophets. Perhaps some might argue the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, where we find ourselves in the middle of a story in chapter 49 regarding God's people. They have the promised land of Israel. They have a king ruling over them, but there's something completely missing from their lives. They thought that their lives would be a, a place of perpetual prosperity, but with every generation of Israel's kings, life appears to be getting worse for the people of God. In other words, what they thought was the promised land has now become spoiled, broken, and now it's in need of restoration. It's in need of repair. So they go and try and find the restoration. Uh, they try and find it in the idols of other nations. They set up altars in what they call the high places. Uh, they know they should worship one God, but suddenly Israel finds itself conflicted in how and who they should worship. 
They try to find their restoration in the beauty of the land that they've been given, the, the size of their trees, the confidence and the abundance that surrounds them, never knowing that they would one day experience drought and scarcity. They try to make it in the size and strength of their army, never realizing that their enemies would come from every side, fighting war after war in an endless chaotic sequence. See, restoration they're trying to find, but they're, they're looking in all the wrong places for restoration. So in comes the prophet Isaiah. Now, if you've just scratched the surface of the book of Isaiah, you'll probably know some of the most famous passages regarding the prophecies surrounding Christ are in the prophecy of Isaiah. So Christ wasn't a good-looking guy. That was promised in Isaiah, right? Christ would be a suffering servant. That was promised in Isaiah. And of course, Christ would be born of a virgin, would be called the Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Check, check, and check. Isaiah was batting a thousand when it came to Christ. And we rightly look in this Christmas season and honor all of those prophecies. But to limit Isaiah to just simply the prophecies of Christ would be a huge oversight to understanding the redemptive story of God's people. It would be a huge injustice to the story of your own life. It would be a huge oversight to our understanding of things like corporate sin, systemic oppression, the cause for every person and people of God to pursue righteousness and justice as a biblical mandate and marker of knowing whether or not you are actually a part of the kingdom of God. And most of all, perhaps most scandalously, if you just look and just pick those prophecies, you will, it would be a huge oversight towards understanding of just why Jesus came in the first place. So to simply make Isaiah into a book about fulfilled prophecies regarding the coming of Christ would rob the book of its qualities which make it so important for the people of God to hear, especially us, to understand when it comes to the kingdom of God and our expectation of what that kingdom looks like. I mean, there are 66 chapters here, and the stuff that we normally read only comprises a very small portion of that message. So what is that message? What, if we had to sum up Isaiah, what would that be? And that would be this, that the promised restoration will make all things new, and that justice and righteousness are on its way. So today, we'll be diving into three things, looking at these uh, five verses together. Uh, number one, uh, what the promised restoration means to us. Number two, what the promised restoration means to God. And number three, what the promised restoration means in Advent. Okay, so first, what, what the promised restoration means to us. Or should I say what we think it means to us. Uh, you see, for the first two-thirds of Isaiah, Isaiah is dealing with all the different nations and the people of God themselves. And as you read chapter after chapter, every nation gets its own judgment, right? From Egypt to Cush to Babylon to Syria, Philistia, Moab, even the people of God, Jerusalem and Judah and everything in between. When you read through these portions of Isaiah, you will immediately capture the picture of how people are trying to find a promised restoration without God himself. What they place their hope in what sins they allow to live in the nations because they will believe and hope that it will bring them the hope, peace, joy, love that, we, that they thought they could achieve. 
And the reality of what Isaiah is telling them, chapter after chapter, and I would recommend just sitting down and reading Isaiah at, at, in long stretches, right? And, and you will come with this weight of this thing, that God needs to shatter your reality of what you think true restoration is. He needs to wake you up from believing that what you're placing your foundation as, as, as a nation, as a culture, as a people, it's not going to bring about the heaven that you think it, it will. And so, after every single time when you read one of these chapters, judgment comes. Not because of God's pettiness or God being unfaithful to his people or, or God just being mean, but because of the fact that God is a God of justice and righteousness. And nothing but the restoration that he is promising will do for the world and for the people of God. Nothing but the kingdom of God can replace the hope for the kingdom of God. No enemy of God's people is going to get away with corruption. No sin within the people of God is going unturned. It simply doesn't happen. So one might walk away from reading these sections of Isaiah. If you read the first two-thirds and you're wondering, what then becomes of this world when God's righteous judgment enters in? What does restoration of the kingdom of God truly look like? This is, of course, incredibly important for all of us to consider because not just Cush or Egypt or Philistia or Moab, but us, Marylanders, Howard Countyers, Americans, uh, we are looking for false restorations in places that restoration has no place to be. Um, you know, uh, American Christianity right now is facing a little bit of an identity crisis, as it often does every decade or two. And the responses have either been either A, a complete embrace of a secular worldview with no distinct Christian idea from the world, or B, a militant view of returning to the false notion of sort of this, this long-begone era of a Christian nation where we believe heaven and its ideals should be the mission of the United States government. Uh, that the USA is some sort of kind of unique Garden of Eden. Uh, so we bounce between these two, thinking that there are no barriers between church and state, where, which, by the way, has historically distorted and ruined the gospel witness as a church, or Christian retreat into a pagan state, which in our longing to, quote-unquote, reach the world, we've allowed for moral compromise that ultimately also hurts our witness. So placing our hopes in either bucket will only be searching for the same kinds of hopes of the kingdom that the Israelites had, that God would lead to, to judge and punish his people, as he had with every generation before. You see, if we are thinking that our brand of Christian restoration for our nation will give us the kingdom of God, uh, we are falsely mistaken. We need a higher view of restoration. Maybe this concept is too large for us to think about from the idea of the nation and cultures, which is Isaiah is primarily addressing. He's addressing nation groups and cultures. But let's, let's just turn this now from a corporate look into an individual look into our own lives. Um, so where are you looking for your restoration? How often has our view of what the true kingdom of God looks like clouded the true picture of what God is offering to us in Scripture? How often do we let this picture cloud the majesty of what God is truly giving to us through His Word? 
You know, uh, pastors and sermons often give a picture of heaven that is, is well-intentioned and good to connect with, but, but I sometimes wonder if we as, as, as ministers of the gospel often gives a picture of heaven that only sounds like gluttony and not a picture of God himself. You know, I've heard in sermons that heaven is, you know, the place where you can eat as many tacos as you want and it'll be the best amusement park that you've ever been to or like, you know, maybe because we live in Maryland, heaven is a place with no traffic on 495 and 95 and you can roam freely across all four lanes and it'll be the greatest roller coasters ever made and we'll live in palaces with modern farmhouse vibe that you've always wanted and maybe some of those things are, are true. Um, and kids, if you've ever heard that heaven is like Disneyland, your parents are telling you the truth. But I want to let you know that heaven is like way better than Disneyland, right? Than it ever could be, right? Um, but even all of that, we still need a higher view of restoration. You know what's even better than tacos and no traffic and amusement parks and great living spaces? Uh, God himself. The glory of God revealed to us in the restoration of his people altogether. And that's what we as the people of God should first and foremost long for. If heaven is simply just the place where only nice things happen, then there will be a great temptation to say, as many people rightly said, you know, we don't need that. Surely, given enough time and money and resources and selfishness, you can build that for yourself here. You don't need heaven for that. You can conceivably create a world where you can eat as much as you want, experience the greatest entertainment that you can conceive of, and even live in the house of your greatest desires. And so maybe that's why our picture of heaven, when we describe it to unbelievers, isn't all that des un desirable to unbelievers. They say, why don't I, I could find that here? But if heaven is the place where the restoration of all of our greatest hopes, desires, wants, and needs comes together in the person of God himself, found in the redemption of Christ, then suddenly heaven becomes the place where we can only find it because that's the only place where God is. The picture of heaven can therefore only come through the ways in which God has promised heaven and not what we long for heaven to be. You see, the picture of heaven without God is not heaven at all. Uh, I was reading through C.S. Lewis's book this week, uh, it's a great short little book called A Grief Observed, uh, a book that documents C.S. Lewis's writings when he lost his wife due to cancer. And one of his deepest longings was to find his wife again, whom he refers to as simply, he refers to all the names in this book as letters. So he refers to his wife as H. Uh, her name was Helen. And his longing to see her again. Uh, he was quick to caution himself about using God as a means to see Helen again in heaven. And he writes this. Um, I have that on the screen. Am I, for instance, just sidling back to God because I know that if there's any road to H, it runs through him? But then, of course, I know perfectly well that he can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as a goal but as a road, not as the end but as a means, you're not really approaching him at all. That's what was really wrong. The fact that it makes an end of what we can only get as a byproduct of the true end. You see, and that is ultimately the issue about what the promised restoration falsely means to us. 
apart from God intervening, we are not the type of people who would deserve this kind of rescue project that Isaiah 49, 8 through 13 is talking about. We are horribly selfish people, doomed to try and recreate the Eden of our desires rather than the new heavens and the new earth. And maybe we might have good and noble reasons, but doomed nothing less because we cannot long for true righteousness and true justice apart from God. We will always perpetuate the lie between our truths, steal what does not belong to us and justify it as good, murder others that get in our way and call it revolution, covet others' possessions and call it ambition. Outside of the grace of God himself, we are the ones most to be pitied and least of all, to be restored. Outside of God coming to rescue us, we wouldn't even desire him at all, other than as a means to an end. But what is the heart of the gospel message? What what is the heart of Isaiah 49 in our text here today? It's telling us what the promised restoration means, not to us, but what the promised restoration means to the Lord. It's telling us that our advent, our waiting, is, is, is a waiting for the kingdom not of our own making, not of our own desires and thoughts, but the kingdom of God that God himself is bringing to us. It's shifting the focus of what we wish for our society, what we wish for America, for the nations around us, what we desire in our own hearts, and causes us to see something different. It causes us to see restoration through God's eyes. With us trying to create heaven here, we fail to see our need for God to come and rescue us. But verse 8 of our text here today causes to see that our desperate cries for peace, for shalom, for salvation, come from the God who is merciful and gracious to respond to us in love. These verses talk about that the covenant, the promise between God and his people could only ever be kept by God himself. Those who were unjustly prosecuted and thrown into prison in, these text, in this text today will be set free. Those who are cast into darkness and thrown out by society will be brought into the fruits of righteousness and joy will be theirs. The scarcity of hunger and thirst will be removed. The horrors and worries about the scorching sun and the cold, bitter cold, the elements around them will be relieved. They will, they will be pitied by the Lord where once they were neglected and scared. The ones without hope will suddenly have the great hope to guide them. And suddenly they'll have an advocate who will walk with them every step of the way. Do you see what these five verses are capturing here? This is what the Lord is doing for us, for his people. We who were once imprisoned by the chains of sin, by the philosophies of our day, by the darkness of our own hearts in the world, the flesh, and the devil, are restored and redeemed by a God who leads us from, as the text describes, barrenness and the emptiness of everything in this world, everything that we're anxious about losing, and realize that we have an abundance in the restoration of heaven that we could never exhaust. We have an inexhaustible God who guides us not with forcefulness or domination, but with compassion that leads us to springs of water 
So when you see it here in Scripture, whatever picture you had in your mind becomes completely transformed by the weight of what God has actually placed in front of you. I mean, this is what happens when we go see nature, isn't it? Um, You know, your iPhone has made so many things better and easier and more accessible, but being in real life in nature and staring at the real deal uh, from a view 10,000s of feet above ground is is something no aperture or camera setting could ever capture, can it? The feeling of the air, the the way the light hits your eyes, the joy that you have of sharing that experience with those around you, there's absolutely no comparison. Uh, I got the opportunity to go um, to one of the seven wonders of the world, the the Great Wall of China, uh, several years ago. And I couldn't believe how stunned I was by the views and the amazing structure that had been built, but also the nature around it. Uh, My initial impression, honestly, going up to the Great Wall was just like, it's just a stone wall going for like 6,800 miles. Like, how special could this possibly be? Uh, But when you're planted there, and you see the stone underneath your feet and you see these green majestic mountains surrounding it and you see just this endless road in front of you. Uh, you see something there that doesn't even begin to, I can't even describe it, you see, accurately in a way that's, that's desirable. Uh, you have to just be there yourself to experience it. Restoration isn't something that lives on in the finite portions of our minds. It extends to everything that we couldn't even begin to imagine. That's what heaven is. This isn't just true of nature, of course. We could relate this analogy to food, sports, and everything else you dream of on your screens. Looking and watching can only take you so far. It can only just be a foretaste of dreaming what actually could be. And that's why the promised restoration of God is the greatest hope that any person can hold. Everything that we think of when you read these five verses here today, the limitations of our minds and heart can only hold in part the greatness of God that will be revealed to his people. And what a picture that becomes for us. Verse 11 talks about the land bending to the very will of God. All right, these sort of mountains and highways, they they go from being inaccessible to free and open for passage. This picture of the kingdom of God opening up for all to come in. No nations are longer restricted from entering in. They're coming from all sides, the north, the west, because all of God's people, every nation, tribe, and tongue, now have free access to the grace of God's kingdom. So what does that lead us to? Verse 13, jubilant singing. It's the kind of revelation that only leads you to the joy of singing right away. Sort of, you know, as soon as a goal is scored in the World Cup, right, that nation that scored, they just bust out into singing, right? It's just, this is unexplainable, unexpressible joy. Their grown men are like wearing all sorts of weird face paint and like, you know, just, just like going crazy, right? Singing with such passion. Why, right? Why? It's because they see in some way their joy being made complete. So imagine what heaven will be like. Imagine what singing will follow from that. Singing becomes the song of the redeemed. The people who have once lived in great bondage, they are now fully free. This is what awaits us. The road of salvation 
once inaccessible to us through our own distorted view of salvation, is given us access by the true salvation of Christ. One for us on the cross of Calvary. The road made clear through the pathway of his perfect life and his righteousness being given to us for those who place their trust in Jesus. This Jesus who is guiding us and leading us on this road. Not heaven as a means to an end, but leading us to God himself. You and I have been invited to this place of restoration. One greater than even our deepest imaginations can see or think of. A restoration of great joy where the ultimate peace is seeing and experiencing God himself in all his majesty. The glory of God shining before his people and takes your breath away. This is the hope of Christian restoration. This is the gospel in all of its splendor. All right, so right now you may be following along with all of this. And there's an obvious question that pops up in your mind. You might say, okay, I'll give you the premise that our view of heaven is distorted. Christian longing should be for the redemption that God is providing. But what good does that do us now? You might be saying, you know, we're a people of Advent. What, what does the promise of restoration mean for us today? This morning, how does this have an impact on me right now or even tomorrow, even this weekend where I'm, I'm dealing with the stress and craziness of Christmas? I, I can't even get my family schedules right. How am I supposed to even understand what any of this means, right? How can I deal with this even just dealing with the weariness of my own soul and the stress I'm experiencing? How could the promised restoration that you're describing be anything but despair knowing that it's over there and not here right now? What the promised restoration means for us in Advent is more than a mere waiting. And so I, I want to talk about this just to close off our time here. Uh, what I'm saying here is not just looking and waiting and twiddling our thumbs waiting for heaven. It's more than just a passivity of affirming a set of truth statements and then living like nothing ever changes until Jesus returns. Uh, you see, Israel wasn't just called to sit until the promised restoration. It wasn't like Isaiah was just saying this and they're like, oh, okay, cool, we'll just wait. They were called to faithfully live out the kingdom principles that God had called them to, both as a nation, as a people, and the individual person. They were called to live as though the kingdom of God was actually present among them in that moment because, spoiler alert, it was. It just hadn't been consummated yet. But Israel failed to see that. And it led them to hundreds of years of exile and waiting. You know, when Jesus arrived on that Christmas morning, we got another glimpse of the truth that heaven would be inaugurated here on earth in the coming of a Savior in a manger. That the kingdom of God was here and is coming. And what did this King of Kings, when he grew up, tell his disciples to do? Hey, I'm, I'm leaving. Just, just sit here and wait till I get back. No. To spread the kingdom of God across the face of the earth. To go and make disciples. To love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor and your family members. And those who have made you even weary to love them as yourself. In other words, the disciples of Christ were to see themselves as bringers of the kingdom of God to the nations, not their own view of what that looks like, but the Lord's. 
Not a mere waiting for God to finally bring about the kingdom, but to be a builder to help shape its very foundations. So even though we might be walking in Babylon, we are called to see ourselves a part of the eternal process of doing the very things that God is describing here, of making the mountains a road, of feeding the hungry and the thirsty, of fighting the injustice of those wrongly judged and imprisoned, making the desolate lands into the land established for the purposes of God. For those of us with children, discipling our children to walk in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Doing, for those of you who are kids, doing your homework well so that we can understand the truth of the world God has made. For those of you with jobs, being really good at your jobs in such a way that we can help shape the companies that we work for and the industries we are employed to respond in a way that is in, in accordance with our understanding of the kingdom, that we belong to a kingdom of God of order, not chaos. These are the responses of a heart of a believer who believes that the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is coming. The great scandal of the gospel here is that God uses his people to achieve his purposes. People once selfish for a heaven of their own, apart from God, now living their lives selflessly like their Savior who gave up his life on a cross so that they might be builders in this great and master plan. So do you see how this gives new life to everything that you do around you? Your mundane, repeating tasks aren't just a part of the endless cycle of despair that has no ultimate end. They are actually an integral part of the hard work that is the redemptive work of God bringing about the shalom of the world. Your discipleship of your children isn't a hopeless effort to eat them, to eat their greens or their kimchi. It's, it's a part of the Lord's plan that the generations of your children would raise up generations of God's people in the building of his kingdom. Uh, for those without children, your ability to have a greater width of relationships and interactions that can be leveraged for the kingdom of God just merely by your presence. It's all a part of reflecting the image of God that you were made for to be a part about bringing the restoration of God forward. For our kids, it means that you can do the best that you can, whether it be your studies raising your pets or, in some case, insects for some of you. I found out that some of you have pet insects and that terrifies me, right? Um, but do the best that you can with that, right? Making music or art, all of these are kingdom activities. And because you aren't looking for your true restoration in these activities, they can hold a rightful place in your lives and in your hearts. You can even dare to enjoy Christmas this year because you're not placing your hope in a cultural Christmas that it simply cannot fulfill. So kids, if you don't get the gift that you want, don't let it rule your emotions because that gift was never meant to satisfy you. Adults, if you don't get the gift that you want, don't <laughs> let it rule your emotions because that gift was never meant to satisfy you. This is what Advent is all about. It's knowing that the promised sun has come. The promised land is here. As we are looking at today, the promised restoration is here and it's on its way. So Christian, don't lose heart, even as we walk with limps in this desolate world. It's why we rejoice when even the smallest of restorations happen. 
as we prayed for today, when, when families recover from sickness, when travels go well, when job opportunities are given, and maybe just even that the Lord has carried us through a really difficult week, we can rejoice because we know that there's something far greater to look forward to, God himself. And we can look forward in a life with God carrying and leading us as he did when he brought us our Savior. Even when we can go to the cross and we can press on towards joy. So let's pray together.